Hello, and welcome to Ipsa Dixit, a podcast on legal scholarship. I'm your host, Brian L. Fry, Spears Gilbert Associate Professor of Law at the University of Kentucky College of Law. And my guest today is Taya Johnson, Associate Professor of Law at the University of Maine School of Law. We'll be discussing her paper, Fictional Pleas, which will appear shortly in the Indiana Law Review. So welcome, Taya. Um, thank you. And it's actually the Indiana Law Journal. But, oh, uh, Indiana Law Journal, of course. Yeah, I just want to make sure I give a shout out to the Indiana Law Journal, which has been um, such a lovely uh, group of students to work with. So Excellent, excellent. Well, well I'm, I'm really happy to be here talking about the piece. So thank you for having me. Yeah, my pleasure. I mean, I really enjoyed reading it. And it's just, it was such a fascinating story that you told in the paper that I, I, didn't, I didn't really know anything about. And, um, and so timely as well. Um, so, so maybe we can start by just you, you explaining what is a fictional plea? I mean, what, what are you talking about here? Sure. So to give a little bit of background to understand what a fictional plea is, um, the way I got the idea for this piece um, is that my last piece, uh, Measuring the Creative Plea Bargain, was about how public defenders negotiate plea bargains, particularly in the context of you know, serious collateral consequences or non-criminal consequences like deportation or sex offender registration or loss of a job, things like that. And one of the ways that they said, well, we get around these consequences is sometimes we just make up something. We, we don't make up the crime. The crime exists in a statute book, but we essentially say, hey, here's a crime that won't make the person deportable, won't make the, the defendant you know, uh, eligible for sex offender registration, and let's just have him plead to this instead of the statute that he actually would be guilty under, given the facts of the case. And so I touched on that briefly in measuring the creative plea bargain and then wrote a whole paper about this one particular strategy that I heard about, and that's the fictional plea, which I describe as a a plea of conviction that is totally untethered from the facts that were alleged. And in fact, the facts that everybody agrees are probably the truth of what actually happened. Okay, so so if I if I understand then a fictional plea is basically when a criminal defendant agrees to a plea bargain to something that didn't actually happen. Right, exactly. And wow. and they do it for some reason they get some benefit from it and so the the article is particularly focused on collateral consequences but there might be many benefits to it in fact there was just a a case in virginia this summer where the judge um, the ayala case where the judge says he was going to accept a fictional plea and the plea would allow the defendant to escape a mandatory minimum on the charge that he actually should have been charged, given the facts of the case, you know, should have been charged under. Um, But because the defendant wanted to escape a particular mandatory minimum, he took a plea to a crime that everyone knows he didn't commit. Judge knows he didn't commit it. Prosecutor knows he didn't commit it. Defendant knows he didn't commit it. So there's real agreement that the defendant didn't do it, and yet they allow him to proceed and enter a plea and be convicted of a crime they all know he didn't do. So is is there a trade-off from the perspective of the criminal defendant? I mean, it sounds like they're they're getting something in the sense that there's some kind of collateral or additional consequence that they don't want to suffer. Do they have to give something up as well? 
So it's an, it's an interesting thing. I think that there are two ways in which there can be a trade-off. One is that there can be a trade-off at the moment the plea is entered. So, you know, when I, I interviewed, for instance, a defense attorney who told me I had a client who so desperately did not want to be a sex offender that he was actually willing to plead guilty to attempted murder and take additional time in jail and, um, and, you know, in order to just avoid this lifetime sex offender registration. So there's the trade-off right there. He's taking a higher charge. He's taking more jail time so that he can avoid the particular, you know, penalty that's the non-criminal penalty of registration. Yeah, wow. So he, right. Sorry. Sorry, in in your paper, you talk about the use of fictional pleas in both the context of immigration law and deportation and in the context of sex offenders or sex offenses and and the sex offender registry. Um, I was wondering if we could dig a little bit deeper into both of those because I thought the examples that you gave or the circumstances that you described were really kind of telling as to why this why this would happen um i want to talk more about sex offenders but maybe we could talk a little bit about how this works in the immigration context as well i mean why would why would a non-citizen plea to something fictional in a criminal law context Right. So one of the most interesting parts of the paper, in my humble opinion, (laughs) is that if you look at the very, very famous um, case about uh, ineffective assistance of counsel in the context of advising defendants about immigration consequences, that's the Padilla case, Padilla Mm -hmm. versus Kentucky. If you look at Padilla, in Padilla, Justice Stevens says, look, the attorneys could get together here and they could creatively bargain around the consequence of deportation. But actually, if you dig a little deeper into Padilla, what you realize is Padilla was charged with an incredibly serious drug offense. Mm -hmm. And in fact, there'd be almost no drug offense, all drug offenses, except for the most minor, right? Possession of marijuana under, you know, a, a very minor amount. Drug offenses make defendants deportable, right? Convictions on drug offenses. So you think to yourself, gosh, in Padilla, you have, you know, the Supreme Court saying, well, gosh, maybe there's some way to get around this consequence. But how would you get around the consequence, right? They don't answer the follow-up. What would be the method for getting around the consequence? Uh And what I posit is, gosh, there just wouldn't be any way to get around the consequence except for a fictional plea. Uh-huh. You could imagine some plea to something that was quite minor, but given the allegations in Padilla, which were actually quite serious, I don't think a prosecutor would necessarily go along with that. Mm-hmm. But might a prosecutor be more open to going along with a serious crime that carried serious criminal penalties, which is what the prosecutor wants, right? Uh-huh. But not a crime, like any drug crime, that carries immigration consequences, which is what the defendant wants, right? So we see in Padilla the trade-off right there in very clear terms. Mm. Do you think the Supreme Court realized that when they made that suggestion? <laughs> it's, it's funny. I, I don't necessarily. I mean, I've, I've thought about it a lot. I think that there is 
you know, I've spent a lot of time writing about this line about creatively bargaining because I think it was, it was a nod to the reality. It was a nod to the reality of what happens on the ground. This mm -hmm. is what lawyers do. They mm -hmm. find creative solutions around problems. And yet in this context, you have to ask yourself, if the problem is deportation, you know, you tell me, Supreme Court, what would be the solution? And I, I can't come up with a solution that wouldn't involve, you know, he didn't have a weapon. He didn't have some other sort of contraband in the car that wasn't drugs, right? You know, mm -hmm. thinking about, okay, how could you get creative? If you just imagine he was just accused of transporting a huge amount of drugs, that's kind of deportable no matter which way you slice it um, in terms of what statutes are available to you. It, it, it does seem kind of odd from a kind of criminal, you know, criminal law rationale that there would be, you know, one set of arguably serious crimes for which somebody would be deportable, but potentially another more serious crime for which they wouldn't be deportable. I mean, what kind of logic is attached to the kind right. of relative consequences of the crime? Right. Well, and I think this is where, you know, kind of the complexity of immigration law comes into play, right? And, and one of the things I always tell my students who are preparing to be public defenders is never assume that you understand immigration law. You know, never make assumptions that you know, oh gosh, this crime seems serious. It must be an aggravated felony under federal immigration law. And this crime doesn't seem that serious, so it must not be. Mm -hmm. um, you know, it's just a whole different world. And and I don't know if this is totally responsive to your question, but <laughs> it's something that, that defense attorneys have to be so incredibly mindful of is that there's not the same sort of inherent logic when you're thinking about, okay, what criminal activity lines up with what particular, you know, other consequences, non-criminal consequences. Hmm. So from a theoretical or constitutional perspective, is is deportation seen as a punishment or a penalty at all? So it, that's what's so interesting about Padilla's is uh, Padilla is really considered a watershed case. Um, when I I was practicing as a criminal defense attorney when Padilla was decided, and there were massive trainings to train us on immigration law. Um, and it's because Padilla had really upended a longstanding uh, understanding of deportation and immigration consequences as collateral consequences. And collateral consequences are, you know, not the subject of ineffective assistance of counsel. Defense attorneys don't have to tell you about collateral consequences as a defendant before you plead guilty. And what Padilla said is, you know, actually they really, they are so serious, right? Being deported is such a profound consequence for an individual it's not direct, but it's not quite collateral, right? They put it in this gray area. And by being in this gray area, it now is something that a defense attorney has to be mindful of. And I think that's why, you know, you see defense attorneys, particularly in the context of immigration, trying to figure out, gosh, how do I get around these very serious consequences um, in this other realm? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. <clears throat> how does that work for... For sex offenses, I mean, is there the same kind of obligation for defense attorneys to warn 
their clients of the potential for uh, their uh, registration requirement if they plead to a particular crime? So there isn't the same obligation on defense attorneys. And yet what I found is defense attorneys are incredibly mindful of warning defendants about, uh, about potential sex offense or sex offender registration requirements, and that actually defendants are really mindful of it, right? That if you think about it, sex offender registration requirements have gotten a tremendous amount of attention. So defendants know that they want to avoid it. They know that it comes with, you know, sort of incredibly onerous, um, obligations. And what I found fascinating doing this research is you'd think, well, gosh, I can understand why a prosecutor might want to help a defendant avoid deportation, right? But Mm -hmm. I can't envision that a prosecutor would want to help a defendant avoid sex offender registration. They feel Mm -hmm. like two very different things. And yet, part of the research I did was looking into, in Ohio, they had these really sort of vigorous debates about changing the rules for plea bargaining so that there would be something akin to what they have in the federal system, Rule 11. Rule 11 requires a factual basis on the record for the plea bargain. And the arguments by the, the advocates who were fighting for a Rule 11 type rule in Ohio the arguments were all about sex offender registration. And there's a judge there, Judge Donnelly, who's done all the, his own research on this and basically said, look, over the course of many years, defense attorneys, or not just defense attorneys, but the parties are figuring out ways to take a rape case and turn it into an assault or a mm-hmm. kidnapping or some other pretty serious crime, but a crime that doesn't include Um, sex offender registration. And, you know, the suspicion there is that they're negotiating around the registration, right? They're Mm -hmm. doing this thing where they say, what's a serious crime? You know, person's charged with a sex assault. They're not just going to get a disorderly conduct. You know, you're not going to be able to figure out a negotiation or negotiate to something quite minor. What can you negotiate to that's serious, but that doesn't include the sex offender registration? And sometimes, that's just a fiction. That's just a plea that it doesn't really, where the facts don't match the elements of the crime, but it allows both sides to achieve their end goal. Right. I mean, it really seems inconsistent with the premise that the goal of sex offender registration is, and the consequences associated with it are rehabilitative rather than punitive. Absolutely, right? That there's that there's this interesting thing that's happening where prosecutors are agreeing that they don't want, you know, defendants to end up on the sex offender registry. And I should say that, you know, that unlike deportation consequences, which I, I talk about in the paper, there are a lot of progressive prosecutors across the country who are pretty open, actually. It's kind of part of their talking points, like we're going to help people avoid federal immigration law. We think that, you know, the way the federal immigration law is written or applied is unjust. And so we're going to work with people. You can imagine, right, that prosecutors are not shouting from the rooftops, you know, we're going to help people avoid sex offender registration. Mm -hmm. But there's evidence that they actually are helping them avoid sex offender registration. And I think it's because a lot of people, you know, who work in the system are aware of the critiques of registration um, and, you know, whether it actually achieves much. Right. Right. Well, I, so I can, I can understand very easily 
why, now that you've described it, why defendants would want to make a fictional plea if it would produce a better outcome for them. And I think I can understand why prosecutors might be open to that as well, insofar as, you know, it might get outcomes that they're happy with or comfortable with um, <clears throat> while avoiding potential kind of holdups and, and difficulties that they might encounter if the defendants aren't happy with the outcomes. But from a broader, like, judicial system, sociological perspective, is this something we should encourage or something we should be uncomfortable about? So what, what I say in the piece is that I am, you know, I don't say this as um, sort of um, openly, <laughs> but I'm very conflicted, right? So the first part of the article is says, look, this is a way for defendants to avoid very serious life-altering consequences. This is actually a way to achieve a, a certain kind of rough justice in any individual case. And so in that sense, you might say, well, this is a good thing, right, for the system. You have what can be seen as really unfair consequences that are outside of the criminal system. Hey, here's how we avoid them. But in the second piece, I turn to a more kind of broader view, a descriptive approach and say, gosh, what is, or not a descriptive approach, but a normative approach and say, well, what does this mean? And in my view, it's not a good thing, ultimately, right? It's, there are a few problems with it in, in the, you know, kind of in the broader sense. It's, first of all, I, I think it's really problematic if we're not attached to any notion of truth. And, you know, I suppose we could debate this idea, but I, I come down pretty solidly in the paper that truth should be a foundational you know, value of the criminal justice system. Mm -hmm. We should care about truth. We should be trying to get to truth. And I think that's part of what is a foundational value, meaning, you know, trials are meant to get to, to a certain type of truth. Um, so one thing is, is, you know, what happens when you just give up on truth? The other thing I say in the piece is I am concerned about the fact that these convictions, although they might be fictional in the moment, they become quite real for the defendant as, as he proceeds with his life. And so I, I start the piece, for instance, with a defendant who negotiated a felony sex offense into three misdemeanor sex offenses, each which would not require sex offender registration. He was trying to get out of sex offender registration. Mm -hmm. So they take one crime and they turn it into three crimes. And those three crimes then go on his record. Well, the, the lawyer in that case ended up calling me after I'd interviewed him and, and told me, look, that kid got rearrested. And I thought to myself, gosh, you know, now imagine, it looks like he has three sex offenses. You could debate, okay, well, before it was going to look like he had one felony sex offense versus three misdemeanor sex offenses, but it actually does look like a real pattern if you say that he has three separate instances of conduct which is what his record reflects. And I can guarantee you, having practiced, there's no way he can now say to a judge, oh, no, no, <laughs> judge, you know, that was just a fictional plea. <laughs> you know, that's, that's not going to fly. Um, and so I think that we have this, this situation in which 
you have a, a plea that will then become part of the formal record. And a person's formal record has, a, has an impact on all sorts of things, right? Whether they get probation, whether, you know, what kind of plea they get the next go round, what kind of job they can get down the road. You know, you can imagine trying to negotiate out, out of one consequence and then realizing that you've negotiated yourself into a, a different consequence, a collateral consequence somewhere down the road. So, you know, and that's, that might just be, a risk that defendants assume. But I think it's something to think about, right? That nobody else knows that these are fictions. It's just the parties negotiating them at the moment know that they're a fiction. But there won't be a little red tag on anybody's criminal record which says, you know, or an asterisk, fictional plea. You know, nobody will realize it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it also seems like in in an abstract constitutional sense, the practice that you describe of fictional plea bargains seems kind of inconsistent with principles expressed in Supreme Court opinions like Blakely or something. Yeah, I I mean, I think what's so fascinating about plea bargaining is that what the Supreme Court has essentially said, and and what you see echoed over and over again is, if the plea was voluntary, and if it was knowing, that's what we care about. And it's really the only thing that we care about from a constitutional perspective. You know, so you start with something like Alford pleas, pleas where you can say on the record, I'm innocent, and, uh, and yet still accept, right, a, a plea to a, to a crime mm. uh, or plead guilty to a crime, but you're just saying out loud, I'm pleading guilty, but I'm innocent. Mm-hmm. And, and the court says, that's fine. It was knowing. It was voluntary. You knew what you were doing at the time. Nobody had coerced you into doing it. And I think fictional pleas, we're seeing where that leads, right? If the only requirement, the only constitutional requirement for a plea bargain is that you knew what you were doing and and it was voluntary at the time. And of course, you know, those are interpreted in ways it's pretty easy to know and it's pretty easy to, to give a knowing and voluntary plea. And if you meet kind of what has turned into a pretty low standard, uh, you got you've got a plea that stays right that's that um that holds kind of no matter what wow yeah yeah i mean so i mean what does it tell us i mean about the sort of the concept behind alfred i mean i always took i always took the sort of the premise of of alfred to be that you know you're maintaining your innocence but we really actually think you're guilty but do you think that the, the kind of the practices that you've unearthed uh, s- sort of suggest that maybe that's not really the premise of Alfred? Well, and here's what I think is interesting about Alfred and fictional pleas is that at least some, um, so the, this case out of Virginia very recently, the judge said, look, this is like an Alfred plea, right? And we accept Alfred pleas and fictional pleas are very similar. And I disagree with that. I, I actually think Alfred pleas stand on much firmer ground mm-hmm. because in an Alfred plea, the idea is there's lots of evidence that the person did the crime, right? So in Alfred, you know, I can't remember the exact, but I think he was charged with a murder and there was a ton of evidence he committed the murder. In fact, he provided, you know, alibi witnesses and they went and interviewed the alibi witnesses and they all said, no, 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 he committed the murder. <laughs> And uh, it was like, there's all this evidence. And the court is basically saying in Alfred, 
look, we've got a very solid factual basis. Everyone here believes that you committed this crime. If you want to say you didn't commit this crime, you know, go to town, say you didn't commit this crime. You can say you're innocent because it, it does something for you. But everyone here believes you did, the, you did the crime. And in fact, because we believe you did the crime, we feel much better that this is a knowing involuntary plea because it was such a you know, developed factual basis. And, and so I see that as being different than what's going on here, right? Because no, there's no developed factual basis. The factual basis is just some facts that everyone has agreed to essentially lie about on the record, right? Yeah, yeah, judge, it was three, you know, sex assaults. Or, you know, I use an example of he, the guy is arrested with marijuana and somehow that magically transforms into, you know, an inhaling toxic fumes charge, right? No, he wasn't with marijuana, he was huffing. And so there isn't any real factual basis there. Mm-hmm. Um, and in that sense, it seems to me a, a more... I don't know that Alfred can make us feel I, better necessarily about the basis of fa- fictional pleas. Right, right. I mean, it's almost like a, a judicial version of legislative facts, as it were. It's sort of facts. That's interesting. Yeah, like yeah. like facts concocted in order to reach an outcome, a preferred outcome, irrespective of what actually happened in the world. I wondered, did judges always accept this, or is it something that some of them push push back against? Yeah, so I, I have a section on judges in the piece, and and what I posit in the piece is that there are probably a few things going on here. So one is that judges. You know, there's there's certainly a, pers- a wisdom about judges that I think is true in lots of places, which is that judges will go along with the agreements of the parties, particularly in criminal state criminal courts where things are moving very very quickly and there are kind of heavy dockets that need to the judges need to get through. And so I think that one thing that happens here is judges don't know they don't really know the parties say we've reached a conclusion here's the conclusion judge says great and and they enter the plea. But I also draw on the work of of Ron Wright and Nancy King, who have written um, about judges and and done a lot of great like empirical work where they're going out and talking to judges. And they find judges are actually quite involved in the plea bargaining process. Um, And in fact, here in Maine, judges are very, very involved in the plea bargaining process. And so in that sense, I think there are times that judges know what's going on but they're still inclined to keep the process moving, right? So mm-hmm. even if they know what's going on, they, um, you know, they, they're inclined to just accept the agreements of the parties and get things going, right? So I think there's certainly an efficiency motivation here. And then I also say, I think sometimes there's a motivation of judges also think some of this stuff is unfair, right? Mm-hmm. And particularly when you're talking, again, in the context of deportation, you know, there you've had some judges, particularly recently, who have said out loud in very kind of, um, you know, open ways, this is the way federal immigration law is working on people who have been charged with low level crimes or minor crimes or been in this country for a very long time is unfair. Mm. So you have to imagine also that there's, there could at least in certain instances, be judges who see this also as a form of rough justice and they're willing uh, willing to go along with that. Yeah. 
Yeah, this, yeah, that, that makes sense. So I, I wanted to close with a kind of a big picture question that was sort of on my mind while I was reading your paper. And I, I feel like you could answer this a lot better than I ever could for myself. So it was, you know, the phenomenon of fictional pleas that you describe in the paper do you think that's a brand new thing or something that's kind of hasn't happened before? Or do you think it's more like a new expression of a longstanding phenomenon? In other words, is it new that there's this kind of fictional element in our criminal justice system or has it always been there and just emerged in different ways? So I would say it's, and I say this in the piece, I, what I am describing is not something brand new, right? That, oh, we've never heard of this before. And in fact, I'm always heartened when I talk to defense attorneys or prosecutors. They say, yeah, 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 that totally is something that happens, right? And I think it's been happening for a while. And in fact, I, I cite to an article um, from the early 90s about um, fact bargaining and probation um, officers having a real problem with fact bargaining where they see, you know, a case coming in and the guy is charged with possessing, let's say, 100 grams of crack. And through fact bargaining, which is basically you bargain over the facts, right? Mm. The, um, he's, he ends up getting charged with 10 grams of crack. Now, is that, I don't know if that's a fiction the way I'm talking about it, but somehow 100 grams becomes 10 grams. And the reason for that is, that the parties have decided that they don't want the defendant to face all the consequences of a hundred grams. They want him only to face the consequences of 10 grams. Mm. So I think this is something that's happened, um, you know, in different ways throughout time. Um, but I, I think that there is something about the moment, right? And, and in measuring the creative plea bargain, I talked a lot about collateral consequences have always been around and yet people are incredibly focused on them, right? And I actually think defense attorneys in particular start, have started to see their job in a different way, right? You have these offices that are now focused really on holistic representation. Your job is not just to get the lowest sentence and the lowest charge, but is to figure out, right, how do you meet the client's needs? Mm. And in that sense, I think, you know, what, what I say in the piece is, Fictional pleas is a case study in plea bargaining writ large, because mm -hmm. what plea bargaining does is it just says everything's on the table. It can all be traded. The facts can be traded. The, your constitutional rights can be traded. The collateral consequences can be traded. The truth can be traded. Plea bargaining is this like ultimate problem solving tool. And I think fictional pleas in this context as a means of getting around all these collateral consequences is sort of, this is the natural, you know, this is the logical endpoint of a system in which absolutely everything can be traded. Wow. So you're not new, but, I, but a kind of a, a new version of it that really lets us see exactly what plea bargaining is and what it's done to the criminal system. Great. Well, Taya, thank you so much. This has been a fantastic conversation. No, thank you. I really enjoyed it. Okay.